when you are doing your will instead of God's will, you're not in submission to God. The devil's sin was a sin of pride. Five times over, he said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Lack of submission is pride. Pride is the exact opposite of humility. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our study in the book of Romans, and in our next-to-last message today, Pastor Brogy will join the Apostle Paul in emphasizing the danger of false teachers and the prevalence of them in this day and age. Let's rejoin Pastor Carl as he picks up from Romans 16 and the defense against false teachers. And so having dealt here with the danger of false teaching and the description of false teachers, he's now going to give us a defense. If you're taking notes, you can see this portion of Scripture really divides into two unequal parts. First, we're going to look at verses 19 and 20, where we find the Apostle Paul's final admonition. His final admonition. Now he gives us this defense against false teachers in verse 19. Notice what he says, For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over you. Now that's impressive. Their obedience had been heard around the world. Because remember what Rome was like. Seneca, the ancient historian from the first century, called this city the cesspool of iniquity. It was the place of the gladiators, the place of the gamblers. It was the place of religious prostitution, of superstition. It was the place where tens of thousands of people would go and entertain themselves on violence in the Colosseum. It was the sin capital of the world. It was far worse than Corinth. It was San Francisco, Las Vegas, New York, and Washington, D.C., all rolled into one. Tatticus, the ancient historian of the day, writes, into Rome flows all the things that are vile and abominable and where they are encouraged. There was gross immorality, open homosexuality, uh, unashamed bestiality, and these Christians in that atmosphere made a difference. They were known for their obedience to God. The report of your obedience has reached everyone, Paul says. Furthermore, he writes, therefore, I am rejoicing in you. He says, I'm excited, and any pastor would be. Any teacher, any pastor, any Bible study leader is excited when people take the truth and they see their spiritual children walking in the light. It brings great joy. And so Paul, in essence, is saying, my brothers and sisters in Christ, they're in the city of Rome. You have a great church. You have a wonderful testimony. I'm so pleased that people all around the world in the body of Christ know of your obedience. But don't rest on your past success. And so he gives them a warning. Notice, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent and what is evil. Listen, just because a church is great doesn't mean it will always be great. Just because Community Bible Church has a great history doesn't mean that we will always be great. There are great schools, great denominations that today are far, far, far away from the Bible, and they are promoting evil across our nation. 
What happened? Among other things, they did not heed the warning of God Almighty. So how does the church stay great? Should the Lord tarry? What will Community Bible Church be like 50 years from now? I know I won't be preaching here. I'll be in heaven. But what will it be like 50 years from now? Will it still be faithful to the Word of God? Well, Paul wants it to be, and so he gives us a warning. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. He wants you to be wise. The Greek word is sophos. We get the name Sophia from it. It speaks of someone who is skilled, someone who is learned in what is good. Listen to what James says as he contrasts worldly wisdom with God's wisdom. You know the passage, James 3. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And so in this passage, he contrasts God's wisdom with worldly wisdom that he will term as earthly, natural, demonic. He calls worldly wisdom a wisdom that produces, quote, a selfish ambition in your heart. It produces arrogance. It creates a lie against the truth. But God's wisdom is pure and it comes from above. It knows how to take the truth of God's Word and to apply it to life. A person who is wise knows how to apply the principles of the Word of God to the situations that they are facing. Solomon can write of the wisdom that comes from above as being sourced in God, so much so that he can say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. His father, David, wrote earlier, reverence for for the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What I'm trying to tell you is that the wisdom that pleases God starts with God. We're to ask God for wisdom, and we will find it in this book by the Spirit of God, and He will show you how to take the truth of what He has written and apply it to life as you walk with Him. And so you cannot know wisdom if you do not spend time with God in this book. And if the last time you had this book open was last Sunday, and you wonder why you lack wisdom, that's the answer. God calls you to feed on it like a hungry man would feed on bread. We've already read in Romans 12 that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed, metamorphosized through the renewing of our mind as we put our mind into truth. Now, do you remember what we studied? It seems like years ago. In fact, it was years ago in Romans 2 and verse 14. He said, for when Gentiles, and if you remember, he's dealing with raw pagans, people who have no Bible, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. How so? In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Paul is saying there are some people who have never seen a Bible. They do not have a Bible in their hands, but in one respect, through general revelation, they have a Bible in their heart. Why? Because God wrote it there. That's why you can go to the most remote parts of the world and you can see people who have a certain established morality that will often reflect what we read in the Bible. They know the difference between right and wrong, what's just, what's unjust, what's fair, what's unfair. Why? Because they are a law unto themselves and that God wrote that law into their hearts. But we have seen 
The problem, as seen in Romans 1, is that people are suppressing the truth about God. And so we have a Supreme Court of the United States that think they are smarter than God. They think that they have wisdom, but it is not God's wisdom. The President of the United States, many in our Congress, the Vice President, many in our own state are promoting things that are downright evil. And they are taking what God has written that they know to be true, not just through the written Bible, but through the Bible that God put in their heart and professing to be wise, they have become fools and they have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. They are suppressing truth. And so people will say, well, being gay is not a sin. I was born this way. Or it's not my fault that I'm a drunk. I inherited the disease. A man recently told me, look, I'm not cheating on my wife. I can sleep around now all I want because my wife is dead. Listen, that's the wisdom of the world. That's the kind of reasoning that comes not from above, but from below. I just read recently of a man who stood before a judge with this kind of thinking. He said it was not his fault that he stole. He said the impulse came to his right hand to hold the gun up against the teller. And so the right hand stole the money. And the judge quickly ended that nonsense by saying, I quote, all right, in that case, I am sentencing your right hand to prison and the rest of your body will just have to go along. <laughs> Paul is saying here in verse 19, wise up for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing, but I want you to be wise. I want you to be skillful. I want you to be steady. I want you to be passionate in what is agathos, in what is good. That is a word that means right and clean. Paul is saying, I want you to practice purity. Purity is to be practiced not just in public, but in private. And when you practice your purity in private, then it will show itself in public. And you will have an inward wisdom that will express itself outwardly. But then Paul adds another phrase. Not only are you to be wise in what is good, but he said you are to be innocent in what is evil. He's saying, practice purity, but also nurture naivete. Be naive in what is evil. Some translations render the word innocent. Literally, the Greek word means unmixed. It means wholesome. It means something that has been unaffected. Deficient of the world's wisdom, we could say, as Webster defines the term naive. The King James puts it as simple, ignorant, of the things that the world knows a lot about. Listen, if you are to have a godly character, dad, if you are to shepherd your home, if you are to shepherd your children, church, if we are to be discerning when false teachers come in, dress like good teachers, if we are to have that discernment, if we are not to be sucked away into some church, that is practicing not what is true, then if you're to have that kind of discernment, then you must be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. You have to regulate your heart. You have to decide, you have to choose what kind of things you will allow in. Not only are there some things you are to keep out, but there are other things you are to let in. And so there are Christian people who say, well, if I don't read the world's magazines... If I don't visit the world's internet sites, if I don't watch some of the shows or listen to some of the music that they're listening to, then how can I witness to them? That is very unscriptural. 
And yet that is what the leading church in South Carolina is arguing. They're saying we need to contextualize the gospel. They're doing the exact opposite of what this verse is saying. New Spring Church, led by Perry Noble, is doing the exact opposite. That which is good. What is better and purer than the Ten Commandments? And he has rewritten them. And he creates services that children cannot go into. They will not allow a child into the service. You have to be 13 and above. They call them PG-13. Listen, not only is that a plain, flat-out violation of the Word of God, Paul assumes that children will be in the service if they are old enough in the public reading of Scripture to hear the words, children, obey your parents. This is the first commandment with a promise attached to it. If they are old enough to understand that exhortation, then they are old enough to be in the service. Listen, God talks about evil things. But he never does it in a way that piques your curiosity. He never does it in a way that tantalizes your sin nature. And so we can talk about difficult things, even with children present, when we do it God's way. But listen, when you play music like Highway to Hell, and you feed people on worldliness, and you remove that which is pure, you know what happens? People can no longer see the evil that is right in front of them. And people tell me what a wonderful church that is. I say they are so naive. They are so blind. It tells me what their private life is like. It tells me the lack of purity that has entered into their heart. Listen, someone told me years ago I should read the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. They said, Pastor, I heard you critique it on the Bible line, but you've read it. You've not read it. How can you critique it? I don't have to read it to critique it. Everything I need to know about the devil, everything I need to know about good and evil is found in this book. Listen, it goes back 6,000 years. The devil tempted Adam and Eve to learn good and evil, not God's way by revelation, but by experience. And God wants you to be naive, simple, innocent as to what is evil, but he wants you to be wise in those things that are good. Remember Moses, that great man of God in Hebrews 11, when his life is summarized, it says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The passing what of sin? The passing pleasures of sin. Don't ever tell someone that there's no pleasure in sin. There is. That's what makes it tempting. But it is a passing pleasure, and in the end, it is a deceptive pleasure because it's not God's best, and it will come back, and it will bite you. And so if you want to be a discerning person, then you have to be wise in what is good and innocent to what is evil. You need to be naive regarding evil. Now remember, the Bible tells us that the atmosphere that Messiah came into the world the first time will mimic the atmosphere that he came into the second time. I've already quoted to you the ancient historian Seneca in the first century who called Rome the cesspool of iniquity. There was no shortage of immorality in that day. It was covered over. And yet, if you know anything about Roman history, you know they protected animals more than they venerated human beings. And the same is true in our day. You can destroy an eagle's egg and go to prison, but you can slaughter and murder the baby in the womb, and it's legal. 
It is a distorted way. It is God giving them over to a depraved, a reprobate, literally an upside down mind where people call good evil and evil good. And so God is warning us. I want you to be wise. That involves some choices, friends. You cannot spend time on any internet site. We have the World Wide Web, and indeed it is a web for many. Many are entangled in it. Many are enslaved to it. Many are going and educating themselves on evil. You say, did they have anything like that in the first century? Yes, they did. If you've ever visited the city of Rome, they had open pornography in their art. It wasn't art. It was porn. It was first century porn. It was evil, some of the things that they portrayed. And Jesus warned, the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But when it is bad, your body will be full of darkness. That's why David post Bathsheba said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. And so if there was ever a time in human history to purposely nurture naivety and refuse the world's entertainments, it's the day that we live in. But notice the next verse. He adds quickly, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, why does... He add that, and what does that mean in this context? Well, I think it might be helpful to get a hold of a couple of the words. First, the word crush. It literally means to shatter, to break into pieces, to nullify, to destroy. And then the word soon. Some of your translations render it quickly or shortly. This verse is not looking at that future time when God, according to Revelation 20, will take the devil and cast him into the lake of fire forever. He's speaking of of a present time for the church in Rome to know and for this church to know as well. Let me read it from the New American Standard 1978 translation because it's a little more literal. There's a difference in one word. It says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The very first word in the King James, the very first word in the old New American Standard, or in some older translation, the very first word is the word then. But sometimes in modernizing the translation and trying to smooth it out and make it a little more readable, sometimes we leave some words out. And in this case, it was a mistake because God the Holy Spirit is connecting verse 19 with verse 20 with this little conjunction. Let me bring the two verses together. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil and, or you could render it, then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He is simply reminding us that victory is found in the context of moral purity. And of course, that can only happen through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hold your finger here for a moment and turn to the book of James. I want you to see a parallel text. Uh, James is to the right. If you're new to the Bible, after Hebrews is the book of James. Turn there. I notice some of you don't bring a Bible to church because you haven't needed one before, but you need one in this church. I'm not here to preach my ideas. I'm here to give you God's word. And you'll get much more out of a sermon if you have a Bible in your lap. James is an apostle. Galatians tells us he's not one of the original apostles. He's one of the later apostles. He's the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. They both had, of course, a different father. Jesus was conceived by God the Spirit, James, by Joseph. And we read in James chapter 4, and let's pick it up in um, verse 4 so we can get the context. He's speaking of Christians who are guilty of spiritual adultery. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship 
with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's a good summary of an unbeliever. God tells believers, because it's possible even for a believer to love the world, don't love the world nor the things that are in the world because it's passing away. But on the other hand, it is what marks an unbeliever. Then listen to verse 5. Or do you not think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires, and the word desire is the word uh, that literally means lust. Sometimes the word lust is used positively in the Word of God. This is a positive rendition of it. The Spirit of God lusts, or God lusts through the Spirit of God. He, God, jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Now listen to how verse 6 begins. But He gives a greater grace. God gives a greater grace. There's not only saving grace... There's growing grace. That's why Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do I get this greater grace that will give me the ability not to be worldly, but to be holy, more like Christ, and to do His will? Well, he's going to tell you how to become a recipient of this greater grace. Let's read the rest of the verse. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well then, if God gives grace to the humble, what are the marks of a humble person? James mentions two aspects. First, in verse 7, submit, therefore, to God. That's the first mark. Submission to God, or going back to what we just read in Romans 16, loving that which is agathos, that which is good. I mean, think your way through that for a second. When you are doing your will, instead of God's will, you're not in submission to God. The devil's sin was a sin of pride. Five times over, he said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Lack of submission is pride. Pride is the exact opposite of humility. And so when your heart says, I want to find out about this evil, I'm curious about it, I want to entertain my sin nature on it, I want to educate myself in impurity, you're doing the opposite of submission, and that is pride. So first, if we are to be a recipient of greater grace, then we must admit this admonition and submit to God. But then secondly, he tells us we are to resist the devil. And the promise associated with it is that when you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Have you ever thought of the devil fleeing from you? For most of us, the idea is ridiculous. We think, well, if we can just get the devil to leave me alone, I'd be happy. No, God wants the devil to flee from you. And if you submit to God, if you educate yourself in that which is good, if you are naive to that which is evil, then that becomes a reality. Now go back to our text in Romans 16. Let me bring the two verses together again. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil, and or then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He will quickly, shortly... As you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, get the devil running from you. He will crush him under your feet. Now, that's Paul's final admonition. Let me bring this in for a landing with Paul's closing remarks, his closing remarks. He brings now this great letter to a close. He says in verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosibatura, my kinsmen, Tertius who writes this letter, greet you in the Lord, and he mentions Gaius, Erastus, and Quartus, and so on and so forth, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and to him who is able. That's usually the way we read these verses. 
Who cares about Sosipater and Tertius and Cordus and Gaius and Erastus? Well, God does, and He chose to name these eight people in the book of Romans. Now, remember, in verses 1 through 15, Paul is greeting people. But in verses 21 to 23, Christians who are in the city of Corinth with Paul, from where he writes the book of Romans, they are sending greetings with him. Who are these people? Look at verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, he greets you. You know Timothy. He's mentioned in a number of epistles and throughout the Acts. We know that Timothy was young when he met Paul. Met Paul. We know he was physically weak. He was uh, a recipient of what Paul termed frequent ailments. He was no Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was a tiny Tim. We know that psychologically he would have been dubbed an introvert. He was easily intimidated. Spiritually, he came from a broken home. His mother was a believer. His father was an unbeliever. But he's converted to Jesus as, as the Messiah on Paul's first missionary journey. And he ends up traveling with Paul. Paul calls him his son in the faith. He's associated with Paul for 15 years. And in the process, he becomes a great man of God. He ended up uh, pastoring the church at Ephesus. And if church tradition is correct, he died a martyr's death. Two letters, of course, and the New Testament are written to him. And he's mentioned in over half of Paul's epistles. Timothy my fellow worker greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason, Sosipater, my kinsmen, which tells you right off they are fellow Jews. Look at verse 22. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. What does the name Tertius mean? It's a number in Greek. It means third. How would you like to be named third? We'll come back to that in a moment. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, remember, we know from the other epistles, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, that Paul had an eye problem. Uh, we're told in Galatians 4, he said, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness, if possible. In the past, he said, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. When he concludes his letter to the Galatians, he said, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It appears on Paul's first missionary journey, maybe he contracted malaria. He had an eye problem. It would certainly coincide with what he writes concerning the timing of a thorn in the flesh. Some people think the thorn in the flesh was Paul's eye problem. It was some kind of physical ailment. No one can say dogmatically. But in either case, Paul would use an amanuensis. He would dictate the letter and someone would write it. And at the end of the letter, he would say, look with my own hand, here's the distinguishing mark, so you know that this is not a fraudulent letter. And so as Tertius is taking down Paul's dictation, he says, hey, brother Paul, I know some of the believers there in Rome. Do you mind? Can I greet them? And the Holy Spirit and Paul's spirit gives him freedom. And he says, sure, go ahead, Tertius. And so Tertius sends a greeting. Verse 23, Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church greets you. Who's Gaius? Well, we know him from 1 Corinthians. He lives in the city of Corinth. He's a man that Paul baptized. And we're told here that he hosted Paul and the whole church, which tells you what? He was a wealthy man. He had a large home for the whole church there in the city to be able to meet there. You have been listening to the final message in our series from the Book of Romans. And if you would like to hear this or any of the messages from this series, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. If you prefer a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478 
And for today's message, request program ROM74. If this series in Romans has been a blessing to you, would you consider helping to support the ministry of Search the Scriptures? Your generous contribution helps the broadcast continue to be heard locally and around the globe. You can give a one-time or recurring gift at searchthescriptures.org or by using the Donate button in the Search the Scriptures app. Tomorrow we'll present the final message in our study in Romans. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Thank you.